Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. Today, in honor of the presidential primary process and the fact that the California primary on Super Tuesday is just days away, we are exploring the issue of framing. Specifically, how candidates are framed in the media and whether that matches up with the sentiments of voters and everyday citizens, as well as how that framing may influence our perceptions of the candidates and ultimately how or whether we vote. My guests today are Ann Belden and Ed Bebout, two professional journalists turned college professors. Ann runs the award-winning journalism program at Santa Rosa Junior College and is chair of the Department of Communication Studies there. Before coming to Academe, she worked as editor and managing editor at several Bay Area community newspapers and national parenting publications. Ed spent 25 years in broadcast television as a reporter and anchor, including many years at Santa Rosa TV station KFTY. He's now chair of the Communication and Media Studies Department at Sonoma State. But before we get to Ed and Anne, I wanted to hear from the young people I'm surrounded by every day, young millennials and older Gen Z voters. Many of them are paying close attention to the primary process as they weigh which candidate they think will best carry us into the future. I asked several people between the ages of 19 and 26 about their perceptions of the current primary process and how the framing they see in the media lines up or doesn't with their own observations and experiences. My name is Amy Gutierrez. I am a second year communications major. None of the people that are left in the primaries were the people that I was going to vote for in the election. And so I'm still kind of like not sure what I'm doing. Like I'm watching the primaries and I'm doing my own research on them themselves, but I don't know what I, what I want to do and like who the right option is to vote for. Bernie has a lot of points and his ideas, I love them, but I just, I don't think that he's really like telling us the entire truth about what he wants to do. Like many other Gen Z voters, Amber has been paying close attention following the candidates and watching the debates in town halls, including the most recent debate in South Carolina. So there was like two standout winners for me. Elizabeth Warren was really killing it last night. She was doing really good. She, you could tell she was prepared and knew exactly what she was talking about and how to uh, combat any debate questions that were thrown at her. Um, Joe Biden, even though he has been kind of um, not very prevalent in the debates pri- prior to these, he did um, stand out last night. Sonoma State student Miles Grabeau has made up his mind. I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. Miles has also been watching the debates, and he was frustrated by what he saw during the South Carolina debate. I thought it was a real mess. I don't know, it didn't really seem like it was going in any real direction. I thought that kind of the candidates were just attacking each other, cutting each other off, and just not really on any certain train of thought. When it comes to framing, Miles sees an undercurrent of agendas. I think the way that they frame the uh, debates and just the news in general, they're really trying to shift everyone's attention onto, you know, someone else. Of course, young voters who have decided which candidate to support are not the monolith the media often makes them out to be. Hi, my name is Kayla Veloso. I am the youngest possible millennial. I already voted for the primary, vote by mail, and I voted for Elizabeth Warren. Have you been watching the debates? Yes, I've watched every debate except the one that happened last night. Kayla says she's also frustrated by the media framing of the candidates, especially over the past week, when much coverage after a strong debate showing by Warren focused instead on Sanders and Bloomberg. Even NPR was doing more coverage on anyone else except, you know, just the most qualified candidate. Um, And I 100% attribute it to misogyny. She notices inequity in how Warren and Sanders are treated in media coverage. Stephen, the airtime that they're getting is very obviously disproportionate and it's very disappointing and feels superficial. In my interpersonal conversations, so many people are like, well, I'm just going to vote for Bernie because that's what other people want. And I'm like, 
What about what you want? Another younger millennial, Michael Vincent Danella Mercanti, is also politically engaged. But when asked who he's supporting, he said, I would tell you if I knew. Yeah, I, I don't know yet. All really great and qualified, but I don't know. I haven't been inspired. None of them really reflect my views on policy. Michael's chosen candidates also dropped out early. Julian Castro, I really liked a lot. And... Andrew Yang, I was really coming around to. And Michael says he too notices framing and bias in many media outlets. Yeah, I've seen a lot of um, commentary remarking on kind of different identities of the candidates. Like if Pete Buttigieg is gay, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren being women. But not like acknowledging it, but then not correcting that bias. So they're just reaffirming those biases. Yeah, one of the frames I thought was most interesting, and then having watched the debate last week, the one in Vegas, which Warren clearly won, and the framing afterward was, oh, Warren won the debate for Bernie, which I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I was shocked by that, because then seeing the clips after, like clearly seeing that Elizabeth Warren was the strongest candidate, like I saw the metrics that she was one of the most tweeted about candidates during the debate. It really surprised me. Oh, going back to 538, they went through all the headlines on the next day, and none of them had Elizabeth Warren in the headline. All of them were talking about Bloomberg, except for Fox News, which I think was a <laughs> an interesting development. These engaged young voters are trying to make the best decisions for their future in a context of media framing that often seems to run counter to what they experienced or saw. So in addition to weighing information, they must also navigate the lens and framing that comes with it. Ed Bebout and Ann Belden think a lot about media framing, and they spend a good deal of time discussing it with students. We recorded our interview with Ann and Ed on Monday, February 24th, one day before the South Carolina debate and eight days before Super Tuesday and the California primary. Thank you both so much for being here with me today to talk about media framing and the primaries. It has been an interesting few weeks. So you both left the news industry to teach young minds how to do journalism well, how to prepare them to go into this industry that the three of us decided to step away from. For me, I loved the industry, but I really love looking at the industry, analyzing it, figuring out how to make it better. And I think that's also the case for you. Um, I know you've both been very dialed in throughout this primary process. And I want to start with you because you walked in today saying that you just listened to NPR. So tell me what you heard. They had um, some political consultants and they had, you know, five or six minutes to discuss. And they started off discussing Sanders with a clip of Sanders uh, at a recent campaign rally. Um, and then they talked about Biden. And then they talked about Bloomberg, who has yet to actually appear on a ballot. And then they said, you know, we only have a minute left, but there's two other candidates. We wanted to mention that Elizabeth Warren and uh, Mayor Pete both had huge rallies over the weekend. They drew huge numbers, but they really don't have a chance because they're moving into states that are really diverse and they didn't do so well in Nevada. So basically they they wrote them off. The vast majority of analysts did acknowledge that Warren basically won the Nevada debate, but the narratives were... Warren wins the debate for Bernie. Bernie unscathed, so he's the frontrunner. Or Warren takes down Bloomberg, so Bernie has a clear path to the victory. Well, she had been somewhat ignored for the past month or, or two from the media as a serious candidate. And I feel like she had to do something, or maybe she felt like she had to do something to get that viral soundbite. And she really took down Bloomberg. It's not like she threw him under the bus. She drove the bus and then backed it up over him and <laughs> and then put it in forward again. I mean, and she uh, 
really came out on top of that of that debate uh, and had a huge surge after, but they're still not focusing on her as any kind of contender. Right, right. And Ed, I, I know that you watched the debate last week as well. What was your take on that? It came on the heels of that uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll where they looked at the different head-to-head matchups and omitted Elizabeth Warren from any of the matchups. They did have Amy Klobuchar, but no Elizabeth Warren who's polling higher. They tried to explain it. Well, we could only do five. Well, then why didn't you drop one of the guys? It was, you know, there was, there, it was a really weird answer to me that really didn't explain why the uh, woman who's getting the most polling results is not the one included in the head-to-head matchups. And I, I just don't understand that, although I wasn't totally surprised because to your earlier point, I find that this issue of uh, marginalizing female politicians is not a new issue. After Iowa, Warren placed third, a strong third. And the narrative at CBS was Sanders gets the popular vote. Mayor Pete edges Sanders on delegates and Biden takes fourth. Wait, you skipped Warren. Warren was third and Klobuchar was a respectable fifth and not mentioned at all. They skipped the women entirely. And these are the women who got the coveted New York Times endorsement. And in Iowa, uh, Elizabeth Warren got the Des Moines Register endorsement. And those were but little blips in the news coverage. It was like not a big deal. Whereas I think had it been Biden or had it been Buttigieg or, or someone else, we would have seen a lot more press coverage. It was kind of like, yes, they got these coveted endorsements, but, you know, which which white man will save us from Trump? Well, I wonder, the three of us, I mean, would we fall into the same trap? I feel like, no, I, but we were part of the mainstream news media. Would we fall into the same trap? I'd like to think no, particularly as a white male. I'd like <laughs> to think no. However, uh, I do think the the concept of unconscious biases is something that journalists particularly have to pay close attention to. I was watching in 2015, I think it was MSNBC one day, and they were talking about who might throw their hat in the ring to run for president on the Democratic side. And they were discussing Hillary. And Hillary was particularly a topic of discussion this day because Chelsea Clinton had just announced she was expecting a baby. So here are all these people on MSNBC talking about, well, do you think Hillary is still going to run now that she's going to become a grandmother? And I'm sitting there picking my jaw off off the floor thinking, uh, what does Mitt, Mitt Romney have, like a half a gazillion grandchildren? Nobody ever posed that question about Mitt Romney. Will this stop Mitt from running for president? You know, I, I, I just blew my mind. But they were, they were having this whole discussion about how this impending birth might change her mind about running. Never would have done that with a man. And look at another example, too. We've had all this discussion in the last few days about uh, Bernie's health records and will he release his full medical records. But I don't really feel like it's been a point of major media coverage. But when Hillary Clinton had a fainting spell after battling the flu, oh my gosh, it went on for days. When President Trump goes to rallies or has uh, events and regularly slurs his words, hardly gets any attention. So some of the other frames I've noticed are um, Bernie is unstoppable, and we've had three small states vote, and, and now he's unstoppable. And 
I think that's an interesting frame as well. But that's not a new frame. Before any vote were, was cast, Bernie was unstoppable. And I want to talk about that as well, the, the way we talk about the a supposed fact of Bernie being unstoppable. So this statement is made and treated as fact, Bernie is unstoppable. And then you see, oh, Democrats wringing their hands because Bernie's unstoppable. Or, you know, Democrats finally getting what's coming to them, Bernie's unstoppable. Or finally we're gonna remake the party, Bernie's unstoppable. Or Trump has a sure win because Bernie's unstoppable. So there's all these different frames, but with this statement that someone, that everyone's sort of anointed as, all right, well now it's fact, but wait, wait. It might be true, but only three states have voted so far. It was so much farther yeah, to go. Does he have something like, uh, I think, 34 delegates yeah. out of 1,900 that yeah. he needs? Oh, yeah, he's, he's done. Might as well right. just call the rest of the whole thing off, yeah. Yeah, why even bother, why even bother voting? Right, right, exactly. I guess we're done. Um, and that's the other thing, framing about, oh, no, what if we don't have a nominee by the time the convention happens? Oh, no, we've got several candidates and they're splitting the vote. That, to me, is amazing because that's the process. All of a sudden, it's being seen as an, oh, no, my God, this could be the worst thing ever. The Democratic Party is going to implode. It's going to divide. No one will go out to vote after this. If we have a brokered convention, nobody is going to vote. That's the message I got from listening to Sunday television yesterday. Wow. And is that true? I mean, I'm I'm going to vote. Am I being weird by saying that I think it would be kind of fun to have a brokered convention, you know, and uh, have all that kind of mess and chaos? Uh, we haven't had one, though, in a lot of people's lifetime. It's yeah. been over half a century. But prior to that, it was the norm. You know, people forget that Abraham Lincoln went into his convention in 1860 in second place in delegate counts. And on the first ballot and the second ballot, he finished in second, but the first place finisher didn't have the majority and he ended up winning on the third ballot. Wow. So, you know, people think that, uh, oh, if it's gonna be a huge mess and what will become of us if we have this messy situation at the convention? I don't know. What could happen is all the candidates come together and form some deal where they're all going to be in the cabinet and Tom Steyer is going to work on climate change and Elizabeth Warren is going to have a position over financial matters or banking or that they figure out a way to say, you know what, if you vote for us, you're getting all of us. We're all going to be working together. So all of your views are represented. The other narrative or framing that I'm seeing a lot of is, oh, the progressives versus the moderates. I mean, maybe that's true on some level, but most people, at least I know anecdotally, are like, hey, whatever, any of them, I like all these people, I'm vacillating between this moderate and that progressive and that progressive over there. Yeah, there's a sensationalism um, uh, concept, yeah. I think, in, in deciding media stories where there has to be a conflict somewhere, and they they immediately hone in on the conflict or perceived conflict. And so, it, you know, it's... Uh, Bernie versus this person or uh, uh, Bloomberg versus everybody or whatever, but that's what everybody hones in on as opposed to similarity. I watched the debate and watched the post-debate analysis and how many of the commentators used sporting terminology to describe the debate. 
We're talking with Ed Bebout and Ann Belden, two former journalists turned professors. Ann runs the journalism program at Santa Rosa Junior College and is chair of the Communication Studies Department there. And Ed is chair of Communication and Media Studies at Sonoma State. One other narrative that I'm seeing is that if so-and-so can't get the black vote, then they have no chance, he or she. And it's assuming that all Latinos, all African-Americans, all vote for the exact same candidate. What I had heard on NPR was, oh, well, they got such a percentage. But if you add up all those percentages, what you'll see is that not every Latino votes for the same candidate, just like not every white person votes for the same candidate. But I think those narratives are are harmful because some people will say, well, I, I really like Elizabeth Warren or I really like Mayor Pete, but he's not going to get this vote or he's not going to get that vote. When votes have really not been cast, I don't like these presumptions that then lead voters to dismiss candidates based on their perceived ability to get votes. Pete Buttigieg has had this, oh, he's he's too white. He, uh, he, he, won't, he won't attract any diverse vote. Narrative hounding him from day one. Yeah, and, and you speak to the other big issue that the media historically has a problem with, which is dealing with issues of complexity. Again, the fact that no, certain groups of people don't vote as a unified block. The fact that there may be certain issues that divide candidates, but there might be many more that unite them. We don't get into those kind of discussions enough when we listen to uh, news reporting or political commentary on radio or television. We have 24-hour news on TV, on radio. We have news anytime on the internet, and yet we are rehashing the same things. I remember a few years back, I was at a conference. There was some court case that the Supreme Court was weighing, and I was really interested in it. And I thought, oh, that this is going to be great. CNN is going to come down with the ruling. They're going to have 30-ish minutes on discussion of it. You know, I was so excited. At the same time, there was, this was a few years back, it was that Korean ferry was sinking, and uh, they were trying to save people. But that had been going on two days, I think. So I'm waiting. I'm kind of getting ready for the conference. I'm waiting for the ruling to come down. It was imminent. The ruling comes down and they said, oh, we've got the ruling. It's this. All right, let's go back to the ferry. And I'm like, huh, no, you actually have content that you could spend some time talking about. And we're going back to the ferry. I mean, not that that's unimportant. It's just that it, we've covered that. Let's let's talk about this right now. And and I think that gets to your point, Ed, about the idea of covering complexity. Oh, my God, this court case is, is nuanced and complex and difficult. And it's much easier to talk about the ferry. I would agree with that. You see this reliance on polls and polls as news and really dismissing candidates based upon a poll in time. This reliance on the polls, it just simplifies matters into who's winning. One thing I tell my students, uh, my favorite definition of journalism is a culture's conversation with itself. And kind of a balance between the press putting people in that conversation and a politician's ability to get into the conversation Trump was masterful at getting and staying in the conversation. He said awful, shocking things about Mexicans being rapists and, and drug dealers. And, um, and he had all these catchphrases that people remember 
um, that he would repeat over and over, but he would say or do these outrageous things, get in fights with Gold Star families, and he would always stay, even in a controversial way, in the news, in the conversation. And I think that Elizabeth Warren, by going so negative on Bloomberg, got back into conversation. But there's also a journalist's responsibility there to keep that conversation going for all these candidates who are viable. And we've seen that kind of the press is focused on the ones who are winning in the polls in certain states that are not necessarily representative of of the whole nation. Right. And we know from 2016 that sometimes polls aren't even accurate, right? Like sometimes people don't want to say who they might vote for. I don't know that that is at play here in 2020, but it was certainly in play in 2016. And yet we're reporting on the polls and we're reporting on as if that is the word. And again, creating this narrative in the coverage of drama and conflict. Uh, I watched it this morning talking about South Carolina. Joe Biden describes it as his firewall, but will it be his last stand? That's the exact words they used. And, you know, trying to create this cliffhanger feeling like this could be it for him. And it maybe it will, maybe it won't. But the point is, it, it's not that simple. And I think they also run in a 24-hour news cycle. This is the thing, too. If it isn't a big news day, then they beat in this case, the uh, primaries like a dead horse and, and just keep going over and over again and keep trying to think of new and interesting things to say when maybe there really isn't anything new or interesting to say about it today. Begs the question for me when we talk about the bright, shiny new object, the telegenic candidate, the candidate with the with the chops might not necessarily rise to the top. What does that say about us? That were shallow Instagram posting uh, electorate that only cares about how many likes and follows we get. I totally agree. 100%. Yeah. And I, I sometimes when I teach a course, I pose this kind of question to students. I said, if I'm if I'm putting together a newscast for tonight and uh, and I have a, the choice of teasing two different things, uh, and one is the new state budget is released, we'll have details of who it impacts. And the other tease is... Kanye has a meltdown. We'll tell you what happened. Which show is going to get watched more? And they all admit, yeah, I'd watch the Kanye program. (laughs) And I said, okay, so we like to blame the media for making these superficial choices, but can you see your role in them making those superficial choices? What I tell my students, and I got this from a conference somewhere, is that what they produce at the Oakleaf News, where the the newsroom that I advise, they have to have a combination of cake and broccoli. So Kanye would be cake. The broccoli would be kind of the news that, that you need to get through life. The news you need about candidates so that you can make an intelligent voting decision. Whereas the cake might be what Elizabeth Warren said to Bloomberg. But the broccoli is what does she stand for and what are her plans and do her plans um, hold water? Uh, And same with Bloomberg. You know, is anyone scrutinizing his plans? I saw a headline recently. It was way down low on the website, but it said, uh, I've done the math. Elizabeth Warren's plan makes sense. Now, that could just be a pro-Elizabeth person trying to talk her up. But the headline was alluding to the fact that someone analyzed her plan and wanted to talk about it. And I would love to see more of that. And I would love for us to engage with more of that content. Are there any frames that you think are positive in regard to how the stories are presented? Uh, you know, I'm, 
again, I get very frustrated during election years. I, I'm a political junkie, and uh, you know, and I loved my old profession, and I loved working in it, but I just feel like pounding the table every election year because the, I feel like the coverage has gotten more and more superficial, particularly in the age of the internet and social media when people don't even really watch television news in large numbers anymore or read newspapers in large numbers anymore. You know, just take a class survey where you get your news and everybody raises their hand when you say social media and the internet. Even with that going on, it's even harder to keep the conversation from being superficial. I feel like a um, media literacy class should be a requirement at every university and every high school. I think that's a hear, hear from both Anne and, and I. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I now have two weeks of discussion about fake news in my journalism, in my intro to journalism classes, because at the very least, I want students to come out knowing how to spot fake news. Um, and it's so important when we see what's happening with Facebook and political ads and Bloomberg paying media influencers and stories like that. As for positive narratives, I don't know. It, well, I, no, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think. Because, I'm having trouble coming up with one. Do you have any? Well, it, yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Uh, if, if we felt that the news media in terms of politics was superficial before... Now that their audience is dwindling, is that going to encourage him to be less superficial or more superficial? They want to have the bright, shiny object so that you're, you will watch. I would say that not so much narratives, but I do think there are some issues that are getting more attention because they're coming up in the debates, because candidates are talking and, and putting them in the conversation like climate change that has come up at many debates and healthcare and how the economy might not be working for everyone but the 1% and the wealth distribution. I think some of, some of the issues that are coming up that the candidates are focusing on and therefore it's getting out there, I think that that can be positive for us as a, as a country to look at, well, are you really better off? Who is better off? Let's see. You know, the the economy might be great for those in the stock market, though not today because yeah. of the coronavirus. Right. Um, but is it really? But but we also have a surge of homelessness. Uh, so look at all the people that it's not working for, and and we have all these people working two or three jobs at low wages. We've been able to at least shine a light on different issues even though there might not be a positive narrative. I think also social media for all its ills plays a role in that as well because when you do an end run around the gatekeepers, you can get issues out there that maybe aren't being talked about. Now, certainly there are issues of credibility and fake news and, and framing and sensationalism and all of that, and all of that has to be dealt with. But I, but I do think, and what you say, the idea that, that are, there are issues being talked about that otherwise hadn't been, that's something. I wish for us that we do have more complex conversations and that we don't make everything a zero-sum game. Well, yeah, that, that all sounds good, but that one thing is so bad, so no. And it's like, well, let's, let's talk about the, the holistic part of it. Well, not only is knowledge power, but it, it makes you less susceptible to politicians who are trying to put catchy slogans on you or scary, scary slogans like, oh, he's a socialist. If you know what the word means, if you know what the reality of it is, you're not going to be susceptible to that kind of uh, Jedi mind trick. What do you wish 
to see from our industry as we move forward with the elections process? Gosh, you know, so many things, actually. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just, uh, yeah, I would say a, a little more you know, effort to dive in, as we talked about before, the complexity of different issues and really give people an understanding when somebody throws a um, catchphrase out there. What does it really mean? Uh, what's the story behind it? And also, if the president says something, don't just report well, today, in response to that, the president said, if it's not true, have the guts to say it's not true. So a lot of work to do uh, <laughs> with our media coverage, um, and hopefully our listeners and ourselves will will keep digging deep and pushing back on the frames that we see. Anne and Ed, I want to thank you so, so very much for being here today. Um, we've been talking with Anne Belden and Ed Bebout. Anne is director of the journalism program at Santa Rosa JC and chair of the communication studies department. Ed is the chair of the communication and media studies department at Sonoma State. Thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. Gina. You have been listening to News in Context. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.